Welcome back to the Getting Committed podcast. This time we're super fortunate to be joined by Harry Rosenholz. Um, I've known Harry now a little over a year um, and he is definitely a wealth of knowledge when it comes to college hockey, getting committed and what it takes to really play at the highest levels. Um, he's worked with over a thousand players, I would say, give or take, from his time between Quinnipiac, Yale and now the Spanish national team. Um, it's super exciting and again, a heavy listen and take some key points away. Now I'll throw it over to the interview. Thanks, guys. All right. So um, welcome back to the Getting Committed podcast. This time we're joined with Harry Rosenholtz. Uh, Harry has a background that extends more years than I've been alive in the game of hockey and in, in women's hockey alone. Um, However, Harry, you know, he comes from a background of coaching at Quinnipiac, coaching at Yale, working in the NWHL when, when that first started. Now he heads up CHS. And um, just what I know of Harry, he's probably had a hand in over a thousand girls at least playing Division One hockey um, in some capacity. And now he's coaching the national team for Spain and heading up their development. And, you know, he's spearheading the success that's coming out of a country that wasn't necessarily regarded a hockey hotbed, but now it's definitely on the map within IHF. Um, outside of that, I know he's dabbled as well, working with the Japanese national team. And if you look at the Japanese development, what they're doing right now, especially the younger age groups in the U16 and U18, it's pretty impressive. So um, we're pretty excited to have Harry here because you know what he knows about college from even from the D1 level, or Ivy, to all the way down to D3, and everything in between, he's he's done it. He's seen it all, and he knows everyone. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, so I'll give a. Well, there's no way I can live up to any of that, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I'll throw it over to you now. So again, so just talk like you know, you grew up in New York a little bit, and hockey's a bit different. So what made you start doing hockey? And um, how well, you- actually, I uh, I think I was a born coach. Um, I can remember when I was in high school volunteering to coach Little League Baseball. Um, So I've always loved that dynamic. I've loved helping to teach and uh, see kids grow and develop. And I like winning. Um, So all those things sort of contributed to my desire to coach. And then when I got into hockey, my coaching really started when I was coaching my boys. I have two, two boys and they both played hockey. And I ended up coaching them from mites all the way through midgets. Um, and we had some success there and it was a lot of fun uh, for you parents who are uh, parent coaches. Uh, I do recognize all the challenges that are involved with that. Um, and for the kids who have parents as coaches, uh, you'll live through that miserable experience. I can, I can assure you. Yeah. So, so you grew up, this is in Connecticut now, right? Well, I grew up on Long Island Okay. Um, and played a little bit of hockey there, not, not a whole lot. Then I went to play uh, hockey in my school in, in Cleveland. I went to a school uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, played a little bit of hockey there. But I've always been a passionate hockey fan. Yeah. I've always been involved in learning about the game and, um, uh, and following it. And I can remember, actually, uh, I helped pay my way through college by creating a board game. Uh, which was a dice game in those days. And, uh, and I had my entire dormitory playing it during finals week. So uh, it was pretty cool. There you go. Nice. Um, so 
you know, let's, let's, let's kind of fast forward a little bit after coaching your son's team and then your first endeavor was with Yale, I believe, in the college scene. Yep. Um, you know, so this is back in, what, 2000? That was 1999. Okay, yep. And I can remember getting a call from the head coach of Yale and he said, hey, I hear you're doing some good things. I need an assistant coach. I'd like you to come talk to me. So I went there, had a little bit of an interview. Uh, we seemed to get along okay. He said, hey, but I need you to talk to my two goalies because I'm going to have you work with my goalies. So I talked with the goalies, and uh, I guess they didn't hate it. So they went back to him and said, okay, you know, this guy's okay. Um, and then um, I, I, met, I met with the coach again, and he said, okay, great, you're hired. And I, <laughs> and I said, well, what does that mean? He said, yeah, my, you're my new volunteer assistant. So, um, so I volunteered and uh, I learned a lot from the very get-go. Uh, and those days, Yale was terrible, um, I, I should say. We, they probably, uh, my first year, they won three games uh, um, against all Division three teams. So at one point, you know, the athletic director came to me and said, Harry, what can we do with this program? And I said, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, why are we even playing Division three teams? Like, you know, let's go. Let's get, let's get me out there and I'll start recruiting kids. Yeah. Um, so, so in the first year, they actually had real trouble getting kids in above the academic index, which is something the Ivy Leagues uh, do as far as maintaining a certain level of academic excellence throughout the school, uh, throughout the, the league. And um, so they sent me out. They paid me a thousand bucks for the whole year. And they sent me out and they said, okay, go find some kids. And I went out and luckily towards the very, very end of the cycle, I'm talking about in March or February, I was able to get these two girls from Edmonton um, to commit to, to Yale. They got admitted and the rest is history. From that point on, we got, we started our slow climb Within the first, in my third year, we actually were over 500. We had a, a 16 and 12 record in the third year. Um, so that was pre a pretty quick, quick, pretty rapid development. Um, and uh, I'm still proud of those kids because they all came with the right attitude and the, you know, and, and things like that. Before then, literally, we hadn't beaten Brown in 18 years. And we hadn't beaten Cornell in 30 straight games. So was the ECAC league as it is now, that was still around back then, or was it different? Well, actually, the, my second year was the first year the ECAC formed and had playoffs. Okay. So that was really the, the, the beginning of that, of that league. Yeah. As it were. So like, if we look forward now to 2020, and look what, what Yale did this past season on the mark, um what you know what what's the what's the difference between back then and and now do you think like what's the well, biggest I mean, the entire women's hockey world has changed it's it's much more serious yeah thankfully uh the coaches are getting paid these days you know and they're making a living um uh, coaching as they deserve to um and uh so i think the game itself has taken on a gravity um that is uh, reflected in the in the in the recruiting world. Yeah. Uh, but in general, uh, the level of play has gotten so much better and deeper. In those days, literally, when I first started recruiting, I think we went to three showcases the whole year. And, that, you know, two tournaments and a showcase, something like that. Today, obviously, there are so many 
showcases that are available. Yeah. And where were the players coming from back then? Was it just a kind of a hotbed where it was like, you know, I think the other day I watched Miracle again and it was Minnesota and, and Massachusetts kind of thing. Um, is that the same kind of thing back then for the girls, like 20 years ago? And now have you, are you seeing players coming from yeah, all over I, the place? In those days, you know, it was almost exclusively Canadian and, and American kids. Minnesota, Massachusetts, Michigan uh, were hotbeds in the U.S. In Canada, it was uh, the Toronto, Mississauga area, Brampton, um, and then uh, a, a few hotbeds out west. There was a school, or there is still a school called Notre Dame yeah. uh, in Wilcox, Saskatchewan, one of my favorite places on the planet. And um, it has a town of 300 people, and everybody there is involved in hockey. And at one point, I think they had, if I'm not mistaken, six female hockey teams. Wow. So going to Wilcox for a tournament was really an adventure, really an exciting thing um and they used to have something called the western shield which was the best teams from the four western conferences uh, western provinces and so that was a recruiting trip and it was uh, it was a lot of fun nice nice so so moving on a little bit from yale and going to quinnipiac because i think there's there's two schools there which are very close proximity but completely different um obviously one's an ivy and one's and just from an academic standpoint but also from a hockey standpoint yeah. Um, you know, I think Quinnipiac was it this year or was it Merrimack? One of them, one of them, I know Quinnipiac went to Belfast recently for that. Yeah, that tournament. was, that was yeah. Quinnipiac, right? Um, so again, so like, what's the difference? Like, do you see, um, obviously it's different back then, but obviously I'm sure a lot of things still overlap in time. So what was the biggest difference going from Yale to Quinnipiac? And, and what do you see the differences in the schools when people are looking at them? Well, look, I think the academic, uh, thing played a heavy role in in the limitations that Yale uh, had at that in those days. Uh, for instance, I can remember when my when I had my first admissions meeting with my with my dean uh, at Yale, and he basically said, "Look, you're always going to be one player short. Meaning, if you're a good coach, you can still win, but you but we're not going to help you. Essentially, today that's changed. I think Yale." Uh, the mentality has changed, right? I think even during my time there, the mentality changed. Now it became about, you know, being successful, putting a, a representative team on the ice. Um, uh, you know, Quinnipiac, um, you know, obviously it's not an Ivy League. It's a scholarship school. So they're able to offer full rides to, uh, to, to talented players. And I can remember that in our first year, I mean, when we first got there, Again, our first year we were three and twenty-six, and and however many three twenty-six and nine. All right. So the culture when we first got there was was really scary. It was it was pretty dreadful. So we had a we had to do sort of a quick renovation. So in my first year we had we graduated three girls, and we brought in eleven. Okay. Yeah. And the next year we graduated three girls, and we brought in eleven. So the, the key thing about that for, for people that are looking at these rosters today and saying, well, they're only graduating 2D, you know, it's not always the way it looks, all right? Coaches have different imperatives. They, they have different needs. So don't go strictly by the rosters, all right? And don't give up because you're seeing that they only are graduating 2D 
and and you're a D. All right, you want to, you know, and you want to continue to dialogue with these schools as much as you possibly can, as much as they're willing to dialogue with you. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really big important point because just uh, even in our own program this year, we had four girls injured like season ending injuries, you know, like uh, we had two girls the start of the year, came in September, didn't play a single game for us. So, right. and, and I also have, that's just from the youth level, but that also happens at college level a lot as well. Oh, yeah, and, sure. um, and colleges and coaches are always changing, right? There's always every year the coaches are moving somewhere else. And, and like, uh, you know, just, you'd be, you can look at it and just be like, people are bouncing around. So um, yeah. people always want a different idea and, and, and that thing. And so, I can tell you from the recruiting side, when we start talking about, the recruiting side, one of the things kids today need to know is it's not, it's never too early to get started if you're doing it right. And it's never too late. There are things happening now because of transfer, because of the transfer portal. Um, there's all kinds of movement happening. There's, there's coaches that are decommitting to kids. There are kids that are decommitting to coaches um, late in the game. So things happen. Uh, the key part is to stay with it, to be persistent, um, and to show them th that that's one of your character traits, right? Yeah. No. So that, that kind of moves on to CHS and something that you've been running now, what, nine? This will be our ninth year. Yeah. yeah. So uh, our eighth year in Florida. Yep. Uh, and by the way, we are rescheduling. We have rescheduled now. So we're going to do Florida as long as the as long as the CDC allows us to and the, the, the local officials and all the, the health people give us the okay. So now we're going to be doing that from August 18th to the 22nd. And in Florida, right? Florida, in Fort Myers, just the way it's always been. Nice. And I think that's just right before the season starts as well. And, and yeah, it's going to be good. And we're also, we've added a second one now just to give people some flexibility. Yeah. And that's in St. Louis um, at the new, uh, at the, at the new, uh, practice facility for the St. Louis Blues. And that's going to be August 14th to the 16th. Yeah. Right? And the, one of the reasons we're doing that is because a lot of the um, in, institutional camps, the camps on college campuses are going to be canceled this year. Yeah. So the coaches are coming to us and saying, Harry, what can we do to go see players? Where can we go? What's, what's the best sort of situation that we can find ourselves in? And of course, the kids are going to be scrambling too because they need to they need to be seen, all right. And there's going to be a lot of activity later, hopefully later in the summer, if the virus allows us to. So, by the way, I hope everybody's staying safe. Yeah, it's it's um, it's definitely something that's thrown the the hockey world in a spin. You know, recently I'm working with a player here who's trying to get drafted this year, and what happens with the NHL and if they cancel the draft, and then he's still trying to stay in shape because. If he gets drafted, then there might be development camp straight after the draft and everything else. So it's definitely throwing the world of hockey in the spin, but it's throwing it even more so on the girls' side because there's spots still open for this September. Um, yeah, there you know, are. And it's, um, you know, and that those players who normally get picked up this time of year. Or in fact, we did a survey recently of some of the college coaches and we asked them, hey, if you still need players, let us know. So if there are kids out there that are looking for this September, believe it or not, there are still a lot of spaces available. Um, so they can write to me, harry at collegehockeyshowcases.com. All right. And, I, and I'll respond to everybody and I'll, and I'll give them all the data from, from which schools are looking for what. 
Yeah, I think I think that's really really important. That's really such a great and valuable resource for people players. And again, this is trying to get those players who feel probably I guess lost and and feel like they've been you know hard done by by what's going on and feel like you know they're, they're thrown in the spin. But how what can you do to? Well, you Sam, you to just to to tout you a little bit. You're doing such a great job of getting kids ready, keeping them physically ready, talking about stuff that we're going to be talking about as far as recruiting. This is an, uh, what you're doing is really invaluable for a lot of these a lot of these girls, especially. Yeah, I hope I hope so. We'll see. Um, so yeah, let's talk more about CHS. So you know, I think a lot of people. My first experience of CHS was obviously the Sweden camp last year, and and going into it blind and not knowing what it was or necessarily the talent level and just what the camp could be. You know, from the outside looking in, there's not a lot of you know, things from it from last year. You know, I was trying to look up, like, where are we going? What is this? Where is it? But once you get there, it's, it's phenomenal because, one, the players, the caliber of the players there are just, like, everyone plays for their national team, majority of players. Yeah. You know, you have players, I think it was from 20, what, 26 countries overall. 25, um, yeah, yeah. You know, your girls coming from Australia, they've been on the plane for a day and a half to get there. You've got players who are 2007 who play like a 2004 2003 um you have girls who are you know in college as counselors who can give that thing and then you know the main thing from a coaching standpoint was just um there was two things like there's no drama like the players all like get on with each other like no one and they're, and they're all there to work hard and then from a coaching standpoint you really got to understand the players in every single aspect and they they are, it took about a day or so for everyone to get to know each other. But I think the way that the, the, the camp runs, you're, so, you're working so intimately with the players in different aspects. You get to see every single facet of them. You get to see, you know, when they get tired. You get to see what their limitations are. You get to see, but you get to see them push past that very quickly. So um, that's exactly, that's, that's why we did it. Okay. And, and the truth is we've had such success for kids getting recruited from that camp and that, and you've touched on it. Okay. The reason is coaches get to spend a week, sometimes two weeks getting to know kids. They have lunch with them. They have breakfast with them. They, they have snacks with them. They work with them on the ice, off the ice. They get to see, you know, they get to really get an idea of who these kids are. And it's obviously very attractive to, um, you know, to the coaches, uh, they push them. Our, this camp, the camp in Sweden, you know, we ask our coaches to push them, right? Everybody comes to that camp because they will get better. We've seen kids. You remember the girl from Italy last year? I won't name names, but in the two weeks that she was there, she yeah, a bomb, yep, just yeah, I don't know, yeah. She went from a marginal D three player to a, a a kid in the end of the second week that D one coaches were saying, "Hey, I'm going to follow that kid." Yeah. So, like, that's the magic. So we're pushing them. They're getting more ice time and more off-ice instruction, both, you know, physically and also through classroom stuff and video than, they'll, than they would get their entire year. So it's, really a, it's a really great atmosphere. Like you said, everybody buys in. There's no drama. Everybody's there for a purpose. Um, and so it's been very successful. We've had 75-plus girls get recruited in our in the last three years of the camp and what's amazing about that is we only have 65 or 70 kids a week yeah so it's a pretty high percentage 
Um, but more than that, kids are going to places where they find a good fit. And that's, that's where, that's my ethic. That's something that I really care about for the kids. Yeah, no. And I think it's, it's, it's the friendships that they, these kids bond as well. And just, coming away from the camp and still I still speak to a lot of the girls right like even you know Millie and Martina played for us this year and just having that still kind of that understanding that relationship with the players and and they the respect that everyone has for one another is such a great thing like I was just speaking to Julia Selensky the other day and just giving her some workouts she can do at home you know like uh, while she's cooped up because she's still in Finland and not going back when and I think from a player standpoint, you know, I always talk about, yes, there's the exposure question and everything else, but what this camp really provides is you're playing against the best in the world, right? Like if we just talk about the U16, you know, uh, Youth Olympics game, there was what, if Japan v Sweden, 11 of them or 12 of them play, were in the final who were at the camp. Exactly. Like 12 or 11 of the U18 Swedish girls were at the camp, you know, from the national team. So if you're a player and you think that, hey, I I think I'm a Division One player. This is basically a place for you to go and, and kind of test yourself. But I also don't want I don't want kids to be scared to come if no, they don't absolutely, yeah. level yet because here's the here's the bottom line. At that age, okay, it's all about development. All right. Yeah. And all I care about is that someone is making a commitment to themselves to get better. Yeah. Right? If, they, if they are there to work, get better, have some fun, because it's a fun camp. But if they're there to get better. Then I'm then I'm happy. And again, we've seen so much improvement. You know, Sam, we could talk all day about recruitment, getting recruited, things like that. There's nothing that we can do as to help these kids more than helping them get better. Yeah. You know, if they get better, then they have a chance of a better chance of getting recruited. Well, that, yeah, that's that's always the equation I look at, right? I always look at like if you have really good coaching, that's number one, and I think you tick that box. You have good opportunities for the players to get looked at, number two. And the third is to get better, you've got to be in an environment that is that has better players than you. Right. And I think that regardless if you're an incoming freshman last year and you're going to college or you're you're previously still a you know, you, you were a Signadia who was a counselor, right? She was going into school, she still got better, or Alva still got better, right? Then right. take Tabea, she'd already been at Yale, still got better. Right. All those those counselors alone got better. Then you look at the players who are still get prep school or still in their youth programs, we're still getting better, right? There was more levels to it than just everyone being the same. And I think- But also for the, for, the camp, for the campers to see the counselors be that committed yeah. and, and understand the work ethic and understand you know, the level that it's going to take to be successful at the D1 level and beyond on the national team level, you know, that's, that's pretty valuable for a lot of kids. Yeah, no, I, I think so. So let's talk a little bit now you know, you touched on it about recruitment and talked about, you know, girls getting committed from the camp and everything else. So, and obviously you've played a hand in not just what you've done with CHS, but every other thing outside of that as well in consulting or just conversations you've had. You probably had over a thousand players that in some way have been come from you and gone to, got committed and played hockey. Um, you know, so, so what do you see? I talk about it with Nick and Taylor and a few other people, you know, what do you see is like a big thing that players are making a mistake right now? Like what is the thing that they're not doing and what's something that they could be doing very easily um, from, you know, especially when we've got more downtime and coaches are, are definitely scrambling and trying to think. Well, look, I think um, 
is a couple of things. I think, I think that Nick and Taylor both touched on, you know, the fact that they want kids who are specifically interested in their, in their schools. So I always tell kids, make it about the coaches. Don't make it about you. Make it about them, their schools, their programs, their coaching ability, things like that, that are, that really indicate that you've done your homework about the school, that you've, that you've looked at a lot of options, um, and the reason you're communicating with them is specific because of this, this, and this. All right? The more specific, uh, the better your chances of making a connection will be, without a doubt. Yeah. All right? So what, so, what, what are some mistakes then? It's like, you know, we talked a little bit like, um, canvassing, uh, print, like copy and pasting the same email, or it could be, like, well, I, know, yeah. I, have, I have a player who, you know, I've talked to her a lot about it. She's been sending countless emails, uh, in the hundreds. Wrong. And, That's a mistake. And right. So uh, hundreds of emails constantly. And yes, you're showing you're passionate, but what, uh, you know, what, why is she sending those emails? And I know she's not the only player probably doing that. And what could she be, how could she be, have a yeah, better I mean, coaches, coaches, after a while, they get bombshelled, right? They're, they're like, can I go in a bunker and hide <laughs> from this kid? Yeah, you only write to coaches when there's a significant development. Hey, coach, I just got picked, or I got invited for the uh, Ontario under 16 tryouts. Or coach, I just made my provincial, uh, my provincial team. You know, things that are specific hockey developments, that's what you should be communicating uh, to the coaches. Yep. Um, I think that's, that's, that's one thing for sure. All right. So, and then I think a lot of people, I know when I'm talking to players and, you know, and they're asking me what they should be doing, how would you go about pl- talking to a player about creating a list, right? And I always, the way that's I look... That's a mistake, yeah. right? I think the biggest mistake kids make today is in self-evaluating right a lot of kids are mid-range division three players and they're writing to wisconsin minnesota clarkson you know bu all those all the all the top schools and then they wait because those schools are never going to be answering them or they're going to be getting a form letter so the the bottom line is it all starts with being you know, being realistic and being and, and understanding who you are as a hockey player. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be a great fourth line player for one of the top teams, right? If you show the right kinds of attributes and if that's truly what you want to do, all right? But I think it's really important to start to get a handle on on evaluating yourself, getting people to, to help you evaluate. If people want to send me video, all right? you can send it to me and I'll, I'll give you some feedback, honest feedback. And I think that, that it's, it's extremely helpful. I know, I know parents all over the, the world are looking for that kind of feedback. So believe it or not, if you want to send me three minutes, please, no more than three minutes, I can, I can provide you with some feedback. Yeah, no, I think that's, again, another thing that's so fantastic. Um, but then when we, if we do, if we, so I'll just give you an example. I've got, a lot of the players that I've coached, they will come to me and they'll say, Sam, here's our list, right? And a lot of it is, di- is directed to the parents as well. And I think a parents play a massive part of this. 
you know, in the, the Europeans, we don't really have any alumni association with a school or care of the schools of Big Ten or we have any idea what an ECAC is or, you know, we've probably heard of the Ivies and that's basically it. Um, so we're not really caring if like, hey, Lindenwood are going to offer this girl, you know, a full ride or there's something else. So there's nothing really, you know, that's the European, but in the US, it's a little bit different and the parents are driving the bus a lot more. Um, so what would you say to, you know, and, and I always talk about it as well. And I say, you know, you probably heard it in the other podcast when I would, my personally, I'm a city person. I couldn't go and live in Clarkson or Potsdam, you know, up that area. Like I would go stir crazy. And it's, um, you know, and I tell them, I tell players straight away, like, what are you as a person? Right? Because hockey is going to, again, suck at some stage. And everyone has that. And regardless of where you are, if you're in the NHL, the SDHL, the SHL, whatever league it is, hockey is going to suck at some stage. And the environment that you're in can't suck. Right? So... So I think, the, the, I think one of the key things is for kids to start to narrow things down uh, realistically and, and to create a matrix, okay? Like, like you said, if they don't want to be in a, in, a, in a rural area, all right, then, then let's take a look at the schools that are urban or suburban that might work. Let's look at what, what we want to study. You know, yeah. let's, let's make sure that the, the coursework and the professors that are there are going to get me to where I want to be. One of the questions I always ask kids to, to ask coaches is, coach, can you tell me how many kids from your school, from your team graduate in four years? Okay, you'd be amazed. You think, oh, it's, it's 100%. Well, it's not 100%. So that's a good question to ask just to get an idea, for kids, just to get an idea, you know, of, of what the of what the next level, the next step is going to be. Am I going to be going to graduate school? Do I want to go to medical school? You know, I could tell you that I've graduated 20 some odd kids that are doctors now from Yale. And I'm thrilled because, you know, uh, because I need help in the, in, you know, as I get older. Yeah. And also in this environment with COVID, we all need some help. Yeah. But, but I can tell you that, you know, it's, you start to put together a matrix of what you're looking for. It, academically, am I in the am I in the ballpark? Is there a scattergram that's going to tell me, you know, what the likelihood is for me to get into some of these schools? All right. Now that being said, I do want to say something about the top academic schools like Ivy Leagues, you know, NESCAC, some of the other top academic schools. You get a big hook, what we call a hook, by playing a, a, a sport on campus by being on a varsity team. If you're a recruited student athlete, you do not have to have 1,600 on your SAT to get into those schools. All right, there's quite it's it's quite fluid, all right, and it's depend it's really depending on how much they want you or how much they can promote you to the admissions department based on your athletic ability. Yeah, no, and I think and then also I think the financial aid plays a part of that as well, right? And that's that's, that's the biggest thing. Like when I'm over. You know, so some people are telling me they are like, this, this girl's got to go NESCAC, 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 NESCAC. And I'm like, well, you know, A, can you afford it if you don't meet the financial aid criteria? Um, and you have like, so that's like a big thing that I think a lot of parents have to take away and just, and again, I'm, obviously I come from a different background and I didn't grow up in the US environment, but, you know, I look at it and I see a lot of people whose parents are driving the bus. 
right? And it, and it comes down to the I, I I truly believe that the players have got to start taking a little bit more onus on their own, you know, where they're going. So what what do you see? Okay, Could, I, I'll say this: I'd probably guess that at least ninety percent of the coaches, all right, do want that first phone call to come from the the kids. All right, they want to start having a relationship of some sort with the kids. Now, I'll tell you this. Before the new rules came in last year, I had a call from a seventh grader, right? And I know the seventh grader because she's a good player and I've, and I've seen her play. And she, said, and she said to me, hey, coach, I have been asked to call these two schools, two of the top schools in the country tonight to make a commitment, right? This is a seventh grader. And I said, really? I said, okay, tell me, tell me one thing. What's a university, right? And she said, I really don't know, like that. And I said, well, look, you cannot make a commitment, all right? If they want you in seventh grade, they're going to want you later on down the, down the pike. Um, get your parents on that phone, right? Don't talk to those coaches without your parents. And I, as a general rule, as a litmus test, I would always say, look, make that contact yourself. As you, you, the first contact um, with the coaches should come from the kid without, without fail. But good coaches are going to want the parents included in the, in the process in short order. So it could be the second call or it could be, you know, some communication. Good coaches want the, the, uh, their, uh, the parents to be involved, to understand what's going on from an adult level. Yeah, no, I think I think that's definitely, and and I know like you, hockey parents can kind of, and you can when you when you meet a hockey player, you know where it comes from when you when you meet their parents, and you know their attitudes and everything else, and it's and people can hide those things, but once you meet their mom and dad, it's it's pretty easy to understand where what that player is going to be like. Um, so let's just talk about I think a really big question as well, and 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 a lot of uncertainty surrounding it with players is how long does it take. Right. Like when you when like, so I, I do all these exposure camps, I do all these clinics and everything else, you know, but how long is this process? I'm, a, I'm entering my senior year. Maybe I'm not a division one, but I know I'm division three. So what is, you know, is there a, a, a quicker process because it's division one go first and then D3 goes second? Um, you know, so like it doesn't have to be a general rule for everyone, just kind of like the average, right? What does the average kind of thing, process of getting recruited look like um, for most players in the U.S.? So look, I think, I think for, division, for Division One, I think that the June 15th call after the 10th grade, which is the first time coaches are going to be making, in Division One, are going to be able to reach out to players is June 15th after the 10th grade year. Um, that's very telling. Okay. So in the old days, when I was recruiting back at, at Yale at the beginning, you know, none of the kids used to make commitments until March or April. In fact, they used to apply to a lot of the Ivy league schools and then decide once they've been admitted, then decide which ones they would go to. So that would happen in March or April. Um, but today, I think you can start to get a real feeling for Division One about you know where you are in the pecking order um, by by that by whether or not you're receiving that phone call, you know where you are on their pe- on their list, you know 
you can't really judge, well, gee, am, am I getting the call on June 15th or am I getting the call on June 20th? Kids can drive themselves crazy about that. But understand, coaches are busy and they have lives. Yeah. And, you know, and they can't just be, you know, they can't all be making phone calls on that, uh, you know, on that day. So don't start making judgments like that, you know, until you have conversations with coaches. Then you can start to, um, to really you know, be authentic, ask them, where am I on, on your list? You know? Um, and here's, here's another little tip. Sometimes coaches will say, well, um, you know, you're, uh, you're in my top list. Okay. So Sam, when, when a coach says that to you and you know, you're a kid, what do you think that means? Oh, well, I'm the coach. Uh, I'm the coach of a scholarship school and I'm saying to you, Hey Sam, we really like the way you play. You're in, you're in our top group. Well, I, you know, I'm thinking many kids will take away and say like, oh yeah, that school wants me. I'm done. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'm, 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 I'm recruited. Right. Not, but nothing, nothing is guaranteed. Nothing's given. Nothing's offered. It's... So for me, when, it, from, for me, when they say that, it, you know, until they say, hey, you know what, we really like you. We followed you. We'd like you to visit our campus. Um, but we want to make a commitment to you. We'd like to offer you a scholarship or we'd like to to offer you a place in our school unless they do that it's prop it's not a done deal yeah okay in fact in some cases you might be in that second or third group right but they don't want to lose you because they until they get commitments from the other from the other kids yeah so i think that's that's such a, a, a big point so when when they say we have this phone call right and their school is showing interest in you sure. and then so let's talk about the official visit because you can take, how many official visits can you take? And typically, what happens on an official visit? Some people have some mythical uh, stories from them. And then, you know, what, what, but what typically happens from a college side point? And how important is that official visit? Well, all right. Again, in the last few years, there were very few official visits, un except for the kids that had already been committed to that school. Okay, so, and the reason is simple. It costs a lot of money to bring kids in from all over to, to, to have official visits. Again, when I was coaching in the Ivy League, we used to bring in 20, 25 kids every year, right? To, for them to see us, for, for us to see them. We used to fly in. That's a big budget, okay, or a big use of the budget. Well, with the early recruiting and the early commitments, schools didn't need to do that anymore, right? So they started to just bring in kids of – a group of the five or six kids that they had already recruited as an official visit. And it was sort of a, a pre-orientation at that point. It was almost like a celebratory visit as opposed to like, Hey, let's feel each other out. Let's get a sense of, uh, you know, of, of how this is going to work. All right. I think it's going to go back now a little bit, at least it has to go back to, to coaches offering their best recruits, their top kids, their most wanted kids, um, official visits. So kids can take five official visits in division one. Um, and they can take five official visits. Actually, uh, they can do it for two years. Okay. But they can't visit the same school twice. All right. But I think most of the kids don't want to take more than five visits. Uh, and I don't think you should, I don't think kids should be looking to take five visits. What happens on those visits, they have 48 hours on the campus, essentially, to get to know kids, 
to get to know the team, to watch practices or games, to get a feeling for what the campus really is like. Uh, again, coaches, most coaches I know put kids into classes to give them a sense of whether or not this is going to be a good fit academically for them. Um, you know, so that's the kind of stuff that happens on, a, on an official visit. That's the official stuff that happens on an official visit. I think we shouldn't really talk about all the unofficial stuff that talk that happens on, on an official yeah. visit. Yeah, and again, I think that's just, but that's just kind of gelling with the team, right? And, and understanding that player is going to fit in well with the group of players. So that's, and that's a big thing. Um, the, one thing I, the one thing I will say is that, you know, a lot of coaches depend on their current players to give them feedback about a kid on an official visit. Yeah. So, you know, if they trust a, a current player and, and they respect that current player's opinion, you know, if that kid comes back and says, hey, you know, this kid was kind of a goof off or that kid wasn't really taking this or I, I didn't get a sense that we were their top school or we were one of their top schools. That can play a very big role in, in the, 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 the future development of, of the relationship between the coaches and, and that player. Yeah. So so that's to say, let's just move on from that and, and, and put a part where it's like, um Let's talk about decommitted, right? And getting decommitted and what that means and, and how do you get decommitted? Like, obviously you can decommit yourself, um, but what kind of scenario would arise? And is it, everyone talks about the sign of the NLI, is that watertight? Once you sign that contract, can you get decommitted? Um, so yeah, that's kind of a question that people ask me a lot as well. So, so the, once you sign, everything before the NLI is, is a verbal commitment. All right. So the verbal commitment is is basically as good as the paper it's written on. All right. Once you sign an NLI, in ninety nine percent of the cases, uh, it, it's 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 your contract. It's your agreement that you're going to accept the scholarship, or in the in the Ivy Leagues or other academic schools, uh, that you're going to accept their offer of admission. Okay. Um, by then which is November of your 12th grade year, hopefully you've got all the kinks out, everything is working out. Now, things could change with financial aid. You know, um, I can, there's a very famous, uh, I don't even want to get into it, but there's a very famous case of a kid that had committed to us in the early decision process many, many years ago. And her father said, oh, you know, don't worry about finances. We have a big company and uh, I make $4 million a year and there's no problem with, with it. In fact, I'm looking to support the, the, uh, the hockey team, all right? And then they, got, they came to financial aid and meanwhile they had gotten all kinds of scholarship offers, right? And the, and the father said to me, hey, look, Harry, we're gonna, we're gonna go scholarship because we, because we don't wanna pay this kind of money and uh, you know, when we could get a full ride. And I said, what happened to the $4 million? You know, like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. what's the deal? So anyhow, bottom line is, um, uh, you know, it, it ain't over till it's over. Let's put it that way. So, so yes, did she commit to us? Yes. Did she get admitted? Yes. Um, you know, but things change. Things change. At the end of the day, coaches don't want kids there who don't want to be there. Yeah. Right? And kids should feel the same way. Don't forget, this is a buyer's market. The, the player is still the buyer here, right? She has the, ultimately she's got the power, 
Yeah. And I think that's important to, to acknowledge and to recognize. Okay. Yeah, no, I think it's good. So, you know, last thing, I think let's talk more about um, what, let's talk about foot, women's hockey and, and what, you know, what are coaches really looking for? What are, you obviously speak to a lot of coaches and we all, and we all know that whenever I'm working with players and whenever I see it's always pass first and goals are something that every team wants. And, you know, what do you see the state of women's hockey and what are they looking for? And, and what's the, how, how are teams now looking to play? You know, the game is changing so much, you know, are they, are they looking for girls who are a bit bigger or athletic? Um, you know, what do you see as kind of the trend and, and what are, you know, what's the big thing that players could do to benefit their game? Well, let, let's look at it from a coach's perspective first. Okay. So for instance, if I'm coaching a team that hasn't been very good, um, you know, I need to, to get, a, I need to get players who are going to be more immediate impact players. Okay. But if I'm coaching a team that's pretty good or, or, or trending to be very, very good, I can be a little bit more patient in what I'm looking for. So for instance, I, my philosophy as a recruiter was always, I want a kid who I believe is going to be great in her third and fourth year. That was some, that was just my perspective. And it, it was pretty good perspective. I think a lot of, you know, that helped, that spoke to a lot of the character issues and, and commitment level and all this other stuff. That was what I was looking for mostly. But a lot, of, a lot of coaches need immediate help. So they're looking to take that snapshot of a kid who's going to be able to step in on day one and really impact their program athletically. All right? Other schools, you know, they, kids might not play for the first year. You know, or they might not play for a year and a half or two years until they've sort of earned that spot. So looking at it from the coach's perspective, you know, it's, it's, it's quite different on what they need. Yeah. Right. And, and looking at it from the player's perspective, you also need to look at it that way. Am I going to play right away? Am I going to impact things? You know, uh, do I want to wait? Am I willing to wait? I, I try to recruit a Canadian national team player. And my pitch to her when I was coaching at, was, hey, you know what? You're going to be you're going to be one of the best players in the league, you know, which was true. You're going to be one of the best players in the league. You're going to be the person that we're going to, that's going to be our go-to kid all the time, um, you know. And we, you know, we really want to we want to center our team around you. And she turned around and looked at me and said, "That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking. I don't want to be the best player on the team. I want to be pushed. I want to have somebody who's better that I can that I can compete against." Yeah. Okay. So. So I think it's important for kids and coaches to be authentic about what they're really looking for um, and to be honest about it. But I think that those are some, there's, there's all kinds of dynamics that way. From an athletic standpoint, I think most coaches are going to tell you that they want character players, right? That's, that's number one for everybody. But here's the question I have for, for, for coaches or for kids. What's, what, what, what does character mean to those, to those coaches? Like, cause different coaches will tell you different things, yeah. right? Some, some want commitment, some want accountability, you know, uh, some want volunteerism, some want, some want you to be great in the community. You know, what does it mean for that coach? So the, the simple, the simple thing that I would recommend is ask the coach, coach, what are some of the character traits you're looking for 
that I can, so that I know. And I want to make sure that it's right for me. Yeah. Again, it's all about fit. Yeah, I think that's, that's such a true point. And it's, you know, it's unwritten in so many ways for hockey. Like what it means to be a hockey player is like an unwritten code. You know, it's we don't seek to, uh, you know, we don't have self-praise. We look to deflect and we like to talk about the group and we don't, we don't, we want to be humble. We want to help our communities, but not look to be like shining the light on ourselves. We don't really like to be the center of attention. Um, and we stick up for one another and, and we, that it's, just, it's again, it's an unwritten code that no one has ever taught you that. It's just the way that the game is, is, is around and what everyone, taught, how everyone act, really kind of acts in the world. It's a great, uh, and guess what? That's a great peer pressure. You know, so I mean, to be honest, the the great players, the, the further along you get in the you know women's hockey, men's hockey, the more humble you become, the more appreciative you are of everything that's been given to you. It's it's just a natural kind of progression. Yeah. So if you show that in you know immediately or initially, that that kind of humility is going to really resonate with a lot of coaches. So, so the, the one counter thing that, you know, I always struggle with and I know I'm the worst person. Like, I don't like, I even I don't like this. I don't like my face being on something. I don't like me to be doing a drill. I like to be the player, whatever I'm doing. But it's the same thing with hockey players. I feel it's really tough when you're reaching out to these coaches. You know, how do you, do you sell yourself, right? Like, because you, you want to be humble, but you don't want to come across as arrogant. You know, so like, is there something... You know, how, how much do you go into detail and do you just, again, does, is the phone call the best way about it? Like, is it better just to pick up the phone than email sometimes or? There's all kinds of media that can be used. Obviously, social media is very important. Yeah. The thing is, when we talk about character and stuff like that, it's not what you say about yourself, right? It's what you can demonstrate about yourself. So I'll give you an example. Today, if I'm writing to a school in New York State, or if I'm writing to a school in in Connecticut, who and these you know this these are two two areas that are really in trouble with with coronavirus, right? I the first sentence I write to the coaches there is, Coach, I hope you're well. I mean, I know your school is in an area that's in that's that's in trouble. You know, I I I, tr- I talk to them. I try to communicate to them about them. Yeah you know, about their process, what they're going through. Coach, it must be really hard right now to, to be, you know, you're not, you're not able to go off campus. You're not able to go watch players. Like, what is that like for you? So in general, I think the more intriguing questions, the more thoughtful questions that kids ask, the better the response is going to be. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, again, another great thing. And something more than just saying that I have a 65% way face off percentage win, but like who, who really checs that? I don't know. You know um, I, give, I give these talks all over the, all over the world, right? Yeah. About this stuff. And, you know, one of the thing, one of the questions I ask is, you know, all right, tell me the one thing about you that, that coaches want to know. Well, it's the one thing. Cause that's, that should be something that you lead with. Right. And, a lot of kids raise their hands, coach, coach, I'm the hardest worker on the team. And I said, what does that mean? Like if I, if you're writing that in a letter or if you're trying to communicate that you are the hardest worker, 
What does that mean? Does that mean you're doing, you're shooting 150 pucks a night? Are you doing, you know, three extra sets of plyos? Where are you with that? So don't tell them, but demonstrate to them. If you demonstrate them to them in some meaningful way, they'll get it. Does that make sense? No, that makes complete, like, you know, and I always, I would talk to players and tell them about the similar kind of thing. Like talk about, you know, if you're going to show adversity, and say you grow up in a small town with only 10 people, that's, that's adversity. You've got to overcome a lot of things just to get to where you are. So let's take someone that we both know, like Kelly Babstock, right? Right. You know, and you introduced me to her and, and what she was able to do in the game, but coming from a very small environment. Like, and she left home to come to Quinnipiac. And you know, it's, uh, it's a big jump, but it's, I'm sure it's something when you're looking at to recruit a player like that, straight off the bat you know she is making so many sacrifices already just to better herself she hasn't got necessarily the access to the training resources that other people might have on their doorstep she hasn't got mike Boyle strength and fit it's just not there for her so she has so you know as a character trait off the bat she's going to tick all those boxes so that's something you know talking to your point there players could definitely be talking about but but just showing you know showing themselves by by putting them in that in that kind of conversation or you know saying where they come from uh, right so if kelly if kelly had said to me harry i'm the best you know <laughs> i'm gonna score i'm gonna score uh what was it in her first year i don't know if she had something like 32 goals or something in her first year i wouldn't have doubted her but it probably wouldn't have been as impactful to me as it was when she was when she would downplay it like and how she would talk to me about deflect deferring credit to her teammates yeah and i don't want to take credit so those are the those are the things that made me want her to be on my team even more yeah all right um but in general you know, in, I think in general, it, it, there is always a conundrum. Like, how do, you, how do you present yourself in a way that are, is going to be attractive to coaches, but without being, being obnoxious? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah it's, it's, it's a catch-22 sometimes. But I think you can, anyone, if you're authentic, you can find the right balance. And um, I think people can take away. But let's jump in here to talk about national team, right? Let's talk about, you know, now what you're doing with a Spanish national team is phenomenal and players who are now even over here playing um which is you know i've got a chance to see two of them this year on the u18 team and and watch them play and play against them um you know and talk about the success that you're having with uh you know a team and a a country that obviously isn't known for hockey more roller hockey than anything else for sure. Um, and which are very good at roller hockey. Very good in ro- we're very yeah. good in inline hockey. Very well, they've got a professional league there that sells out and players get paid a, a good living and, and have an apartment yeah. and stuff. So talk about, you know, not maybe you can touch on the Spanish team and what you do with them, but also talk about, you know, the state of the international game with the, you know, the women. And, and obviously we know the, the level of play outside the U.S. is so high right now. And it's growing each, each year. And, and what does that mean? Absolutely. It's growing internationally. That means for kids who want to get recruited that they need to understand first of all that there's not only the kids that are you know um, in the u.s and canada but they're also competing against very talented kids uh, internationally um so but i should make a general announcement if anybody that's listening has a spanish passport 
or can get a Spanish passport and plays hockey at a good level, I want them to contact me. Okay, because we're always looking and we always keep our eyes and ears open. Um, for me, the Spanish thing is sort of a, um, a mirror of what we've done in the past, what I've done in the past with developing a culture, a winning mentality, uh, pushing kids uh, to, to enjoy the game, to love the game, to be passionate about the game. And my, my saying has always been, if, if you love the game, the game is going to love you back. So for us, the limitation is ice time. You know, there's only nine rinks in all of Spain that play hockey. So there's only nine rinks. And so, you know, it's very difficult for the kids to get adequate amount of, of ice time. So we're, so we're compensating by doing extra off-ice things, by doing stick handling. I have them following YouTube channels, um, you know, all those things that are going to hopefully develop a culture of, of leadership and of, of, you know, personal growth um, that translates into some great things in the future. I can tell you right now, I'm really excited about some of the younger kids in Spain. I feel that those guys can actually play with any of the international teams uh, in the world right now. Oh, yeah. We saw like this year, we had Laura Gill, where she was at Rice Prep, right? Yeah. Um, and then you have Aitana was over in um, Gilmore Academy. And then not, not even... What's Isaiah. The other? Isaiah. Isaiah. Oh. Be, right. Yeah. And, and you just look at, you know, Laura Gill, she was probably the best player at, uh, in her team this year. Whenever she played against us, she would try moves that were just creative. And I think that comes down to our role hockey as well. She was doing things. It wasn't, and, and I, I struggle with this sometimes, and I know players listen to this. You know, I don't like to dump and chase. I don't like to put, like, release the puck, but a North American way is hit that red line, dump it in. But there's no need to do it anymore because the gap control between the defensemen, because no one is lining you up by Scott Stevens, even on the blue line anymore, right? It's the, on the boys' side, it doesn't happen, right? right? When we're talking, when the puck goes in the corner, if you watch the NHL, the only time someone's rimming the puck is when someone is getting hit. Right, they have to make that play, and they got no other option, so it's a hard rim. Whereas when we're giving away pucks and we're giving away plays, it just makes no sense. So, you know, when I see players who maybe don't have the ice time that everyone is rewarded with, you know, there's so much they're looking at the game in a different way, right? Because they're watching what's developing, that you know, they're trying more things, that they're, they're out there stick handling, and then you know, they're not the stick handling just to do it because their coach says do it for half an hour, they're doing it with a purpose. Exactly. I be creative. Um, so so this, during this COVID uh, uh, crisis in Spain, because Spain has been terribly yeah. uh, hurt by this. Thankfully, knock wood, my kids are okay. But during this crisis, I'm getting videos sent to me from, you know, Instagrams and stuff that from my kids and they're on their, they're on their balconies doing stick handling. They're doing, you know, they're doing warm up drills. They're doing all kinds of off ice things. We're doing whatever we can to be as good as we can be. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's uh, a tribute to the kids. I think that the kids um, are really committed. They really want to be better. Um, one thing I will say is that, you know, I'm trying to change the style of play in Europe. You know, one of the great things about the Sweden camp is, you know, kids in Sweden and Finland and, and some of these other international countries, their skill level is actually better than skill level in the U.S. and Canada. 
on a pure skill basis, they actually, they probably have more skill at a younger age than, than, um, than North American kids. And the reason for that is they focus on that endlessly. They're yeah. always doing skill things and they do it in sort of a, in sort of a progressional uh, way. But they don't compete. They don't compete the way we do in North America. So I'm trying to help at least make them aware of how to compete, uh, you know, and to, and to, and to be able to use that as part of their, uh, as part of their new national identity. Well, I'm doing that for Spain for sure. All right. Because I like, I like pressure. All right. And I like, I like to cut down on time and space. All right. So my kids, I think were super aggressive you know, um, and, and that's one of the things that I like. We're going to take chances. We're going to get burned quite a, quite a few times, but we're also learning how to play with tight gap, with, you know, super aggressive forecheck. Um, that's just who we are. Yeah. And I think as long as we can create that identity and the kids buy into that, um, it's going to, we're going to be, we're, we're going to, we're going to change some minds. Yeah, no, and, and what was the last tournament there in Dumfries? Didn't you guys win it? We came in third. Oh, you third? Oh, damn it. I thought you guys won. Well, we, had, <laughs> we, had, we had the chance to win it in our, in our fourth game, but we, we blew it. Yeah. 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 Maybe you didn't know enough Spanish to tell the girls. I'm not sure. But, uh, but no, I've, I think that's the biggest thing coming out of it. Like, you know, you guys over there, you, you have the limitations, but something that I always stress is to players here, you have to be an athlete first, right? And then if you get back to the college environment, you know, I've shown videos to girls of players working out. This Harvard University women's hockey team, you know, on YouTube, here's their workout video, right? And they're in the gym, they're power cleaning, they're doing their pull-ups, you know, squatting two plates, three plates on each side, you know, lifting some big weights and expressing and saying to them like, hey, it's really important to be an athlete first not just because of what the byproduct is for your on-ice performance, but from a social performance, like I touched on in, in the other thing, like just because, you know, you want to go to school and if you can't do a pull-up on day one of fitness testing, right. that's probably not going to be a good look with your group of, and you're going to feel like you're an outsider and feel like maybe, you know, you don't belong there, you know? So the importance, and I think, you know, when I saw like someone like Hamina or, you know, Lil or Gil or, you know, um, Isaiah, you know, what they had was they were definitely athletic, right? That, so, so by being, not having to be on the ice every single day, hour of the day or every day of the week, they're able to explore and what it means to be athletic. And then, you know, we, we were both on the ice of Nikolai Ehlers last year. Right. And he hadn't been on the ice for what, two months, three months? Right. Right. And he's an NHL player taking two or three months off and he's one of the fastest players in the NHL. Like, if you look at his straight line speed, he's up there with McDavid, Barzell. Great facial hair. Great facial. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, he's, he's insanely quick, right? And, and he's insanely skillful. And it's not by being on the ice every single hour of the day. So, you know, I think what you guys... Uh, so, and here's the thing. A lot of people don't have the resources. You know, a lot of countries don't have the resources. It never stopped Russia under, under Tarasov, right, who was a legendary coach, it never stopped them from being creative and finding ways to use whatever you have available. You were talking about Kelly Babstock. You may not know this, but Kelly may be or may have been an even better lacrosse player than she was a, a hockey player. She's phenomenal. 
So, and she could have had scholarships anywhere for the cross. All right, so the bottom line is um, you, ha you, you have to be creative, you have to use the resources that are available. Um, and, you know, and I think kids that want it badly enough will find a way to make, make good things happen for themselves that way. Yeah, and, and that just, again, it, it's, you, you're not a hockey player on just days you play hockey, right? You're a hockey right. player every day. And it's, you know, what can you do? So, Watch um, the NHL. <laughs> Listen, even on the recruiting side, I always say to kids, have you, I've asked them, are you watching the streaming video for the team that you're interested in? You know, yeah. so that when a coach asks you, well, how, how do you think you'll fit in on our team? You know, and you say to them, well, I think I could be second line. And you can say, you know, the reason is because this girl, this girl, this girl, they're, they're better than I am right now, but I'm going to, but I feel like I can, I can hang with these other guys and I can make plays with these people. If you, the more, you know, the more you investigate, the better off you're going to be. It takes, it takes time and it takes homework. Yeah. But I think, I think if you're following them on Twitter and you're following them on Instagram or you're following, you should be like, I, even myself, like I'm, I am I was watching the games, Holy Cross. They played Northeastern when I was there. I watched that game. Um, I saw Holy Cross beat not UVM twice towards the end of the year. You know, and, and those kind of, you have to take a, a, an active interest in it. You can't just say to yourself, I'm going to go play for Minnesota. Like, if you have no idea who the twins and sisters are, you know, and know how skillful they are and how great their goalie is and she transferred from UVM, like, you've got to know every single thing. Um, before you're going into that like it's not it's not just a, a rock up and and kind of just say i'm going to score like and and and, and, and be passionate about it be like you know why where did this coach come from like oh this coach used to play here and maybe she can teach me this or i follow her on instagram and like i really like what she's about and her life and but also self self-advocate yeah okay don't be afraid to self-advocate don't be afraid to to put yourself out there all right I know that you like this thing, like you like the, the, the idea that if you're good enough, people will find you. Okay. I can tell you, I wish that was the case. 100% <laughs> of the time. It's probably the case 80% of the time, yeah. but I know a lot of kids who have fallen through the cracks over the years. A lot. I can give you an example. One of the first kids that I've really helped out was a girl from Minnesota who sent me some video. And I said, wow, kid's pretty good, right? Um, and uh, she had never gotten a phone call. She had never had a letter returned or an email returned in all of the recruiting that she had tried, right? I called a school in, uh, in Vermont, D3 school, um, and, I, and I said, hey, take a look at this. You know, what do you think? They ended up recruiting her. She ended up being rookie of the year in the conference. So... Trust me when I tell you that there are kids who fall through the cracks and it might be, it might be because they're not doing the right things, yeah. but it might also be that, you know, coaching staffs are, are, can only do so much and can only be spread so thin, right? You know, three coaches are allowed to be recruiting at any given time. And today, unlike when I started, there's, there's so many different options as far as showcases, camps, and things like that. So, um, you know, I, all I can say to you is, um, you know, be proactive, self-advocate. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there in the right way. Yeah. No, and I think that's a really, really important thing that we could probably wrap up this conversation. But 
that's um, how do people reach out to you, Harry? Like I know you mentioned it earlier on, but how would someone get in contact with you? They want to ask you more questions or sure. So you can, about recruiting? they can write to me at Harry at college hockey showcases.com. And when's uh, when is the news Florida showcase going to be? What the day? News Florida showcase is going to be between the 18th and the 22nd of August. Yeah. And St. Louis uh, and St. Louis will be the 14th through the 16th. And, and Sweden, touch on what that July, Sweden is July 13th to the 24th. Um, it's an awesome camp. I hope kids can can take advantage of it. We'll make you better. I promise. Well, yeah, I was speaking. I, Victoria was telling me she was super pumped for it this year. So, um, yeah. all right. Well, thanks, Harry. Thanks for the time. And we'll um, yeah, wrap it up in there. Cheers. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate but, it. All right. knowledge here um if you need to reach out to harry reach him out to him at harry at collegehockeyshowcases.com uh in terms of the podcast we'll keep these coming we'll keep them coming probably once or twice a week and uh thanks for all the great feedback i've been getting so far and um yeah keep tuning in thanks guys peace soon